Chief P. This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Doctor Doom wears body to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and this is Shoot the Shit, Volume 5. Today, I got a guest with me, and we're going to talk about the first thing that comes to mind for either of us, but usually what I do is talk about comics, movies, and TV shows, and the reason for that is really simple in that comics, movies, and TV shows are totally awesome. Plus, it's not like I can talk to anybody else about that stuff, so I talk to you guys about it. But anyway. As for today, though, as I say, I've got a, I've got a guest with me. Uh, he's agreed to shoot the shit this time around, and a lot of you know him as the former host of Taking Flight, a Nightwing and Robin podcast. Others of you know him as the host of In Country, which is all about the Marvel comic series The Nom. And tons of you know him as the host, creator, proprietor, and lead blogger for Pop Culture Affidavit, the blog and podcast that covers everything random in the world of popular culture, which, by the way, finally came to Two True Freaks back in September. So I welcome, with great pleasure, back to the show, Mr. Tom Panarese. Welcome back, sir. How are you? Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to doing this for a while. Ditto, actually. And... You know, um, like a great big reason for that is you've been on the show before, but I think it was just a sort of in and out kind of thing for my uh, my fiftieth episode. But y- yes, and then you were on uh, you were on Pop Culture Affidavit because we talked Clerks back yeah. in August, I think it was. Yeah, but we haven't really recorded together all that often, mm-hmm. and I got to tell you, that's that's a damn shame because. I really like your I really like your show Pop Culture Affidavit. Now, just to kind of I guess give my re- my readers, my listeners, uh, sort of an idea of just how good this show is. And Tom, I, I, I'm praying to God you hope that you that you take what I'm about to say as a compliment because that's okay. how it's intended. But you know, a lot of podcasters out there they'll have their girlfriend on their show or they'll have their wife on their show, and there are instances where it's kind of I, I just wonder, you know, really, what the hell was the point of that? I, it's sweet and you know, cute and everything. Yeah. But really, what what purpose was served? And because they're not as into whatever the subject is as the regular host and everything. And I just I didn't really see what the I, I guess what was gained in doing this. And so I hate to say it, that was the baggage which I brought into episode thirty nine, Must See TV. Oh, yeah. Which is uh, – that was part of your series of 1994, the most important year of the 90s, which was badass, by the way. And I was thinking, Thanks. well, 
the missus is going to be on the show. So, you know, look, I really enjoy the show. So I'm just going to keep my damn mouth shut, you know, and, and we're just going to, you know, knuckle through this. And holy fucking Moses, dude, that show would not have been half of what it was if Amanda oh, really? hadn't been there. She was, dude, she brought the A game, dude. I mean, you guys were like in perfect tandem with each other. You were just firing right back and forth. This was a great, free, I mean, like your show in general is awesome. That show was a real standout for how badass it is. I mean, that was as good as anything you've done. Thanks. And and the funny thing was, because I was listening back to it, and there were points where, because we were recording in real time, because we were recording as we watched the I think it was just three episodes and there were points where there was just a lot of dead air because I think it was, I think it was especially evident during like um, Seinfeld that we just had nothing to say about the show. Like, and, but no, um, we, we always joke about it. Like, you know, we should just record ourselves watching TV every once in a while. So that's, that's where that came from because we had, we had a lot of fun doing it too. Well, the, um, I, I guess the, Based on absolutely nothing that you've ever said, but I guess what I sort of assumed, wrongly, obviously, <laughs> was that your interest in pop culture and comics and TV and all that stuff, it it was something that Amanda kind of tolerates, but that isn't something that she much indulges in herself. And really, it's I, what I found was that it's kind of the opposite, that you two really are kind of – you you sort of met your match with her, it feels he, like. Yeah. Um, now, she does not have the interest in – comics that i do mm-hmm. um she she does love she does love her some wonder woman and um which is really cool i have a um i got a sketch from george perez a couple of years ago when i was at a con of wonder woman it's hanging up on her office uh wall and um but beyond that we intersect. We, I think, what's cool is that we intersect kind of at, at, at different areas. So, um, so she's a huge nerd for, um, and you know, it sounds so stereotypical to say it because she's a woman, but like, she knows fashion very well, mm-hmm. and um, and food and, and some of those things. And then, you know, I have a lot of the the comics and sci fi stuff, and and. Uh, so we both have kind of our own thing, but yeah, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot that, that intersects and a lot that we both love. And I think it, it came from, um, we just kind of discovered it as we were dating, you know, years and years ago, because we, uh, I think the majority of our dates would be to like movies and stuff. So, we watched a lot of movies together. Over wow, years and a lot of TV shows over to get together over the years because, you know, we both grew up in the suburbs, and there's nothing to do in the suburbs. Yeah. You know, you go to the movies. You know, if there's if there's a pool hall or 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 something in your area, that's where you go. So, but no, I, I'm I'm glad you liked it too because we we had a we had a blast recording it. Um, and, uh, and it was pretty, it was a pretty cold job there. In other words, like neither, we hadn't watched the show before the shows before, um, watching them that night. It's not like we did a dry run or anything like that. Uh, and the friends one, I think we were the most familiar with because the friends is like perpetually in reruns, but, uh, I I saw it myself a couple months ago. 
Yeah, and the the Seinfeld one, once that got going, the two of us remembered because there's a point in Seinfeld where the episodes do start to blur together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then uh, Mad About You, neither of us, I think, had watched that for probably going on 20 years. That, That's the closest I've ever come to seeing an episode of Mad About You, actually. So The first couple of seasons of that show um, – are really, uh, I think you can stream them on Amazon. That's, we streamed it through Amazon, so I think that's what um, we had rented the, the one episode through Amazon. But um, they're worth watching. You get past like season three or four, and uh, the show goes downhill very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know. That's um, There are certain shows that, let's face it, they've got kind of a limited franchise, especially if you don't expand it in the right ways. And yeah, that is. I, I, I mean, what little I know about that show, I don't. Uh, how how do you expand that? Like, how do you grow that? You know. So yeah, I, I can see that. Yeah. Well, and to to use a very old term by now, and it's funny how this term is old, but you know, every sitcoms especially have the junk the jump the shark moment. You know mm-hmm. the, and you know it's the classic ones. I remember from years ago being on that website were like. They bring the baby in. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a new, just they bring in a new character, like a like a poochie <laughs> or something. Um, Ted McGinley. Starts, <laughs> uh, that was one of them. They, they, yeah. they used to refer to as Ted McGinley as the patron saint of shark jumping, and um, and or like so there were, there, but there were certain like things or um, this sort of. There was one that they used to have a category called "They Did It," where like you know the character, because um, this, this is what this is what they say killed Moonlighting, where they finally hooked up, and then the the chemistry between the two actors, just be, characters, completely died, and stuff like that. So, um, and every show will try to rejuvenate itself that way. And I think with Mad About You, it was like, um, it was the baby kind of was was the thing that kind of killed it after a while so well the yeah and it is it is kind of interesting how that how that term has entered the lexicon but what yeah but what's what i find even more interesting than that like i guess like the pathology of it is the way that different people define it i mean like what does that mean does does jump the shark mean that that moment where the show just starts to suck or is it that moment where the show even if what comes next is actually really good on its own merits it's that moment where the show strayed too far away from its from its i guess mission i think it was because because the the, remembering the site where it was essentially a board where people would post their their thoughts and their comments i think it i always took it to mean it's the moment where you realize that this show has kind of it has kind of crossed that that line right the event horizon so to speak you know where where um because because if you look at the moment it's named after mm-hmm. yeah it is like <laughs> yeah this character is no longer cool and i think you're right it's straight too far from its original premise or it's just kind of it's hit that point of no return where even if it will have flashes of greatness of its former glory every once in a while, the show is pretty much like, you know, you're, it's pretty much done. And, and you know, it's, it's, it might even get dragged out for several more years after it. There are certain sitcoms that friends actually is a great example. The last couple of seasons of that show, with the exception of a couple of episodes to me anyway, are unwatchable. 
because they were just dragging certain storylines out and they were trying, I don't know what they were, you know, it was just like they were, or they kept bringing the same crap up and you're like, you know, and, and we read comics. Yeah. I mean, we're used to seeing this, but even us as comics fans are like, why are we bringing this up again? Um, Oh, because a new writer has a hard on for, you know, this relationship or something like that, or this villain or whatever. So, well, one of the one, one of the sort of interesting things about that whole sort of uh, jump the shark mentality is I know very few people who still enjoy watching The Simpsons. I mean, I'm sure they're out there. The show is it mm-hmm. gets renewed every season, so obviously they do exist. But I don't personally know anyone who just tunes in. Oh my God, this is this is my show. Yeah. Everyone seems to agree that this show is past its expiration date. No one seems to agree on when exactly that happened. I think you're right because with the Simpsons, I'm trying to remember when I stopped watching it on a regular basis and it's gotta be at least 10 or more years ago. Mm -hmm. And there was a point maybe in the early 2000s where we stopped watching or I stopped watching the new episodes, but I was still watching the reruns. Right. And then the reruns started disappearing in favor of whatever crap they were putting on. Because, you know, uh, syndication channels uh, or, you know, the syndication deals like kind of rotate in and out. So, Mm -hmm. you know, they only get the rights to so many seasons of a show and then they want to refresh it with something newer. So... That's why, um, you know, your local Fox affiliate at the hours of like six, uh, the hour like seven and seven thirty, is not still running the Brady Bunch for forty years later. They're not still running different strokes for the facts of life. They're 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 not even running Seinfeld anymore. They might be running I don't know the Big Bang Theory or something that's on popular now that they can do reruns because they'll get more viewers that way. But uh, so the Simpsons reruns kind of disappeared from local channels, but I have to say it's probably like 10 or 15 years ago where we just stopped watching the Simpsons altogether, but it was no one moment. It was just, it kind of faded away. You know, it was like, we just kept forgetting to watch. Mm-hmm. And then after a while, it wasn't that big of a deal. Now when FX reran, not FX, FXX mm-hmm. did their, every Simpsons ever marathon. Mm-hmm. That's why it was such a big deal. I thought. Yeah. Well, because like, you know, we, we, we figured out when it's like, it's like basically you get past like season nine or 10 and the show starts to show its age, but like seasons like five through nine, mm-hmm. that's like a sweet spot, at least to me. And maybe it's just because that's when I was a huge fan of the show. Mm-hmm. So we sat down and watched a lot of those and we were like, wow, I forgot how great the show is. And there are some episodes that look incredibly dated um, because of the references they're making, things like that. But then there are other shows that like, there are other episodes that are absolutely timeless from, from that. But yeah, you're right. It just kind of, it, it burned out. No, it, it, it faded away rather than burned out. Right. You know, um, well, I hadn't seen uh, a new episode of the show, which I define as, you know, you, that moment where you sit down, you watch the show, it's brand new. Mm-hmm. I hadn't actually probably done that in, I shudder to think, it was, I want to say it was like 2009 when I finally watched a new one. So in that, yeah. by that point, it had probably been about 
probably 10 years, I would say. Mm-hmm. And so this was uh, 2009, sat down and I thought, well, the show is still on, people are still watching it. And there was a link to watch it online, you know, the, what was the new episode that had, you know, broadcast the night before. Yeah. I can, uh, well, whatever, I can, I can put aside a half hour for this. And oh my freaking God. It was basically the family went to Ireland, I believe. And uh-huh. um, what I, I, if, if it says anything, I truly do not remember a damn thing about the plot other than they, wait, did they go to Ireland? Well, I, I, there, there was something about Ireland in, in that episode. But what I will always remember is that it ends with, for sure, this is the way that it ends, is Chief Wiggum, he does this stupid, idiotic slapstick routine where he keeps spraying himself with his own pepper spray and uh, he ends up getting his hands uh, cuffed together in his handcuffs. And I realize that the guy's an idiot and he's a clod and you know he screws stuff up. But I never thought of him as being more like that that physical comedy, especially how do you do physical comedy and, and animation, but especially, but that character, it's the guy's just fucking oblivious. He, he, he's clueless. He has, he's totally inept. He doesn't deserve the job that he has. And that's where, and he's lazy. And, and that's where the humor of it all comes from. And here he is, he's just doing all of this stupid shit and animation, which is just, I don't know why, just less funny somehow to me. And I was thinking this once great show like this is what we're doing now. I, yeah. Fuck me. Well, the I think the thing and the animation point is a good one. When you're doing physical comedy and animation that you can do in live action, that's like classic physical comedy. Then I don't think it really needs to be like in animation. For instance, I don't want to see Homer Simpson unless they're doing an homage. I don't really need to see Homer Simpson come in the door, trip over an ottoman, like he's Dick Van Dyke. Right. Yeah. Because Dick Van Dyke can do that. But the the very, very classic moment that they've shown time and time again in clip show after clip show of Homer on the skateboard because Bart was going to jump Springfield Gorge and Homer goes down the gorge and hits yeah. his head on it. That is funny because that's what you do with animation. Like when the physical sight gags and stuff are so over the top because you can animate that and it's not – you can't do that physically at least on the budget that you have. Mm-hmm. That's where the physical comedy and animation like that comes in handy. The thing that was bugging me, not necessarily Chief Wiggum, but it was like Homer had become like some of these characters who who had who had personality and had just depth to them became more and more one dimensional as the show went on. Mm-hmm. Like, like Chief Wiggum, some of the, you know, not that I need a whole, you know, ongoing storyline about him or who or somebody like that, but there was always a little bit of heart and depth to them. And there are some episodes, yeah, when I've seen a few of the recent ones where they've just become one note, one joke characters. That and I got to say, there are shows on like Cartoon Network now. Mm hmm that are doing the Simpsons essentially better than the Simpsons is being done now, you know, if, or, or on, um, or they're just shows that are aimed toward a younger audience that are, that are getting away with the sort of almost adult humor that you would have expected from like classic Warner brothers cartoons and stuff like that. And, mm-hmm. and they're way more entertaining than the show. And I honestly have never watched really watched family guy, um, and I keep meaning to sit down to watch Bob's Burgers because I keep hearing so many good things about it. And I'm like, I really should. I just, 
I'm going to grab it off of streaming or something and just watch a, a ton of those. But I was never a huge Seth MacFarlane fan, so I never watched Family Guy. But I have to sit through um, cartoons every night. <laughs> My son's actually getting older to the point where the younger ones, the younger stuff, um, we don't have to watch anymore. But Thank So we'll God. watch. Yeah. But we were enjoying um, – I thought Star Wars Rebels. So he watches a couple of the action shows, Star Wars Rebels and that sort of stuff. But he'll watch um, the one show that, that we actually all love is The Amazing World of Gumball. It's on about oh, 7 o'clock or so every night on Cartoon Network. And it's a lot of physical comedy and ridiculousness and anthropomorphic characters and stuff. But there's a lot of hum- adult humor and jokes in there that go completely over his head. Mm. And we're not going to explain it to them. Um there was an episode recently called the watch and the dad's standing in front of his son, giving a speech. And I looked at my, I looked at Amanda and said, is he doing the scene? I think he's doing. And she said, yes. Now they obviously didn't go so far as to talk about how he showed the watch of his ass, but I was just like, that's brilliant. And then I was, and for a split or, or second, I'm like, the is slurs that? either. You know? Yeah. And then, and then for a split second, I was like, is that appropriate? But then I remembered. Um, I don't know if you watched Animaniacs when it was on. No, it it, it went by me. Animaniacs. Um, it would have gone by me had it not been for my sister because my sister liked to watch the stuff, and um, so we used to watch it in the afternoons. And they had a running bit called the Good Feathers, which were these three p- pigeons who basically talked like mobsters. And one of them would do Joe Pesci's bit. Um, you think I'm a clown? What am I, funny? I know I'm resting, I'm resting. They pull me in, they start giving me all kinds of questions, you know, this and that. He says, oh, uh, so what are you going to tell us, tough guy? I said, my usual, zero, nothing. I tell you, the fuck. He says, no, you're going to tell me something today, tough guy. I said, all right, I'll tell you something. Go fuck your mother. <laughs> Bing, pow, you saw the paper, Anthony, my head was up like this. And I didn't so, then, so now I'm coming around, you know, I start to come out of it. Who do I see in front of me? This big prick again. He says, oh, what do you want to tell me now, tough guy? I said, Bing, what are you doing here? I thought I'd tell you to go fuck your mother. <laughs> I thought he was going to shit. Pow, ping, pow. fuck is... Gee, I wish I was big just once. <laughs> You're a big cop. You're really funny. You're really funny. Uh, <laughs> what do you mean I'm funny? <laughs> it's, it's funny, you know. It's a good story. It's funny. You're a funny guy. <laughs> what do you mean? You mean the way I talk? What? It's just, you know, you're just funny. It's, you know, the way you tell the story and everything. Funny how? I mean, what's funny about it? Tommy, no, you got it all wrong. Oh, Anthony. He's a big boy. He knows what he said. What'd you say? You're right. Funny how? Just, what? Just, you know, you're, you're funny. <laughs> you mean, so? man, let me understand this, because I don't, you know, maybe it's me. I'm a little fucked up, maybe. But I'm funny how? I mean, funny like I'm a clown. I amuse you. I make you laugh. I'm here to fucking amuse you. What do you mean funny? Funny how? How am I funny? I'm not just... You know how you tell a story? What? No, no, I don't know. You said it. How do I know? You said I'm funny. How the fuck am I funny? What the fuck is so funny about me? Tell me. Tell me what's funny. I 
Get the fuck out of here, Tommy. <laughs> you motherfucker. I almost had him. I almost had him. Stuttering, yeah, stuttering prickhead. Frankie, was he shaking? I wonder about you sometimes, Henry. You may fold under questioning. <laughs> and for years until I finally sat down to watch Goodfellas, that was where I, you know, that was the only ref- point of reference I had with that bit. And I'm like, well, this is like Goodfellas is not a children's movie. No, it is. Neither is the Godfather. But how many people know half of the lines from the Godfather because of something that was referenced in a sometimes in a cartoon and stuff? Well, and, you yeah. know, the thing is, I don't think I would have caught that reference myself. But mm-hmm. I, that having been said. I've never really been big on Goodfellas. I have never understood where that movie's reputation comes from. I've never thought Ray Liotta was was all that interesting an actor. I mean, Joe Pesci is good in that movie, but I don't know. For some reason, it's of of those you know big mobster movies of the '90s. Mm-hmm. Casino's the one that I even that one's not exactly high art, but I've just I find that one more interesting than I do Goodfellas. There's something about Goodfellas that just rolls right off me. I don't know why. I I can't. I enjoyed it. It's been a very long time since I've watched it all the way through, so I, I have to. It's it's due for a reevaluation, at least for me. Casino, I remember seeing for the first time on VHS, mm-hmm. and it was such a long movie. It was two tapes. Oh yeah, yeah, I remember that. And I remember the first tape was was great. The the back end of the movie though, um, it it was a lot weaker. Kind of like it starts to it starts to fall apart when they start getting into the kind of the later stuff. But I do remember that being a much better. I thought it was much better than the movie than a lot of people gave it credit for, because it was not. It, it's not a beloved Scorsese movie on the level of Goodfellas or you know, Raging Bull, Taxi Driver. Yeah, the the obvious. Yeah. Well, the thing. The, look, keep in mind that I, I sort of came to that movie Casino and and a. In a strange way, I saw it, and let's face it, this this movie at, at the time that the movie came out, it's strange to think of it now, but the controversy wasn't so much about the fact that you know there are so many uh, slurs against Jewish people in that movie, or mm-hmm. or that you know it's it, it's got this violence in it, or or or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. The controversy in this movie is that something like if, if you boil it all down to mathematics because that kind of softens the blow i find if you can make things a numbers game Mm -hmm. the f word gets said approximately every (laughs) minute and a half or maybe once a minute or something like that on average and it's true i mean it's in there like something like i don't know like a thousand times or something like that it's insane and so i saw that movie and when i was a kid maybe a little bit too young to really appreciate it i would say and so came back to it though as an adult and I think I took all the wrong lessons for it as an adult because what I took from that movie was that if you're living it up, you've got the high life, you're a millionaire and you're living this flamboyant lifestyle, fuck's sake, dude, don't get married. You know? <laughs> or or find someone who is just as ambitious as you are, which has been kind of the lesson I've learned from House of Cards. <laughs> Right. So, uh, um, but you know, to kind of shift gears, though, one of the things that I uh, that I wanted to talk about with you specifically for a while now. Yeah. Um, what I've, you know, what I do, I work a very 
trying to think of how best to it, it's it's not a, a solitary job but it, it's the job that that you do best when people just leave you the hell alone uh-huh. right and so yeah uh that means that i get to listen to you know through my uh this gaming headset because i bought a gaming headset a couple months ago for work so that i can mm-hmm. listen to music right just go to youtube and just you know find something that looks interesting and because I, I want something that's long you know and so for a while there, it was all classical music all the time, right? Yeah. Nothing but classical music. Then it was film scores. And for a while there, it was REM. Uh, lately, mm-hmm. though, it's been Oasis. Specifically, definitely maybe, what's the story, Morning Glory, and Be Here Now? I'm sure they've got other stuff after that point. But I don't know. That's sort of more my era. I I don't – I, I think of all people, you would probably understand this, but there's a sometimes there's a band. They're a good soundtrack band, you know. Mm-hmm. It's like it's there. It's sort of like the soundtrack to your adolescence. It wasn't a band that you were necessarily, you know, coming in your pants for because of the fact that they're that they're gonna be you know playing in in, in town next week and you've got tickets. Yeah, you might not even give enough of a damn to even buy tickets. It's not the point. The point is. It's one of those – their music somehow, it, they were always there when you went to a, a particular party or that first time you got dumped or yeah. when you found out you you know, you know failed some class or something like that. It's like they were always kind of right there with you, yes, sort of fellow travelers. And that's kind of who Oasis is to me. I mean I really like their sound, but I'd be damned if I could sit here and tell you that they were my absolute favorite band ever, and but I've been listening to a lot of them lately, and uh, mm. anyway, I just want to throw that out there so it comes mm. back to me. Well, no, that's that that is um, this is going to sound so pretentious. That's the guiding principle of mixtapes half the time. <laughs> but no, and um, you're right though. There's there's certain there are because um, there's certain the, back in the day when we would actually make tapes for each other. Um, friends and stuff, or, or or burn CDs, and now you you know you, people still do that, or they'll share playlists. Because um, friends of mine and I, every once in a while, will you know just make a playlist, grab all the MP3s, and throw it on like Dropbox or something, and send us send each other the list. Um, or if it's stuff we already have, they, we just send each other a list of songs, and like you know you construct it in iTunes, but. There are certain there are certain mixes that you would make because you want to give somebody because you wanted to introduce them to a certain band or the person. Like I had a friend once who was like, you know, I have Springsteen tickets. I know you have just about every album. Can you make me a CD? So I was like, yeah, sure. And I did that. But then there are certain things where you kind of literally make a soundtrack for whatever time period you're trying to recollect or commemorate or whatever. And you're right. There are certain songs that in a million years, you would not go out and seek that song or band out, but it was just, it was there at that moment. And then that time and, or it reminds you of that person or that, you know, because it was either a just popular and constantly playing on the radio. Right. Which if you remember, if you worked somewhere, very often in the summer or whatever, and the radio was on, you heard um, summer 96 was sublime Oh, yeah. over yes. and over. And I still cannot listen to that band because I'm just like over and over and over and over again the whole summer. But if I were to make a soundtrack of the summer 96, I'd probably throw one song on there because it was just always there. And then, um, but no, I see totally 
know where you're coming from because you kind of like the band and and on on some level I think you like the band, but but they're not you know this isn't something you go out of your way to listen to, but at the same time it just it there's a sentimental attachment mm-hmm. to it. Um, yeah, I think the Bare Naked Ladies were a, a big one for me for that. Uh, where every once in a while, like I have a bunch of their albums because like at a certain point in the, just like everybody else at a certain point in about 98, 99, 2000, they were kind of one of the biggest bands. Mm -hmm. And, um, I had first heard them in 96 when the old apartment came out. So I had a couple of albums and, but I haven't sat down and like willingly sought out and listened to you know what I have in a long time unless something came up when my iPod was on shuffle and then it takes me back to senior year of college and you know we're going to see them on concert or something like that so mm. yeah I completely understand what you mean I think that's one of the fun things about um, having such a huge music collection or just having such eclectic tastes in music too that mm-hmm. you know also about growing, getting older, that you honestly don't give a shit what other people think about what you're listening to. Yeah, pretty much. And that was actually going to be something <laughs> else because what I did was I put together a, a playlist. Um, and what I what I wanted to do was – it wasn't necess- – the idea was not necessarily to put together like the hits of my childhood because mm-hmm. I've, I've never necessarily really wanted that. What I wanted was – Either what was I listening to at the time, which I define as anywhere from 1993, I had a long adolescence, so anywhere from 1993 <laughs> to about maybe 1999, 2000, around there, I consider that to be my extended adolescence, right? Yeah. And so what, What? number one, what specifically was I listening to? Number two, what, I guess, m- was I generally or potentially might I have heard at the time? Mm-hmm. And then number three, what is just some un... Like unappreciated stuff that was that, that was playing at the time, and somehow I, it just it just went right by me. Yeah. And so what I decided to call this um, was trapped in my adolescence. This mix, right? Was uh-huh. was the the idea was that it was nothing that was too far beyond two thousand. Uh huh. There were a few, but not really. I, I, I tried like hell to avoid that. So, did I listen to Tori Amos's Northern Lad when I was in high school? Fuck no. <laughs> but I heard it. That but that album came out while I was in high school. I heard it after I graduated, and I got to tell you, dude, from the Choir Girl Hotel is a badass CD, and that song's really good. And. And I, I look. I've said from the get-go, I own more Tori Amos CDs than is maybe absolutely necessary. But yeah, you, you know, it's just at, the older that you get, you know, it's fine with me that that I put um, I don't know, Mazzy Star, Pearl Jam, and Heather Nova all in the same the same mix. And I, I'm kind of at a point in life where I don't really worry about what anyone like because when you're 14, I mean, your cred with your peers is the only thing you give a damn about. Oh yeah. And I don't. And as you say, you know, if you're still worried about that when you're our age, dude, you gotta fucking grow up. Yeah. So anyway, it's just it's weird how things change. It is, and you mentioned Tori Amos. Tori Amos, I have. I have little earthquakes under the pink, and I think I stopped it. Boys for Pele, mm-hmm. and then 
kind of fell off my radar. Um, I have a couple of other songs that I've downloaded individually. Um, I think it was because I just didn't like the Boys for Pele album, and I was just like, you know. Uh, but the, the the other two, I, I still really enjoy. I she actually, um, I think she's mad talented. Mm-hmm. Um, not she's mad. Yeah, she's also well. I think that that kind of goes with the territory sometimes. <laughs> she she actually, and it's I don't blame her, but she has that sort of. I think I jokingly called it in a, in a column years ago. I called it the Tori Amos effect, where her fans or a segment of her fans will annoy the ever-loving crap out of you yep. to the point where you don't want to listen to her music, even though. The two should there should no be no connection between the two. Um, I was actually at a party. My department chair threw a party the other night just because we were all you know fried going into spring break, and um, I was talking to my coworker's husband, and he has been a fan of Buffy the Vampire Slayer for years. Mm-hmm. I never got into that, and the funny thing is, is that if you look at Kind of, if you do the equation, I should have loved this show. Right. But part of it was it started coming on when I was, um, I know, like the last half of college when I really wasn't watching a ton of television to begin with. Mm-hmm. And the other thing was is that I knew a lot of fans of the show and I was just like, and it's just my personal hang up where they, they trumped it up so much. I was just like, I just don't think I want to watch the show. I'm like, yeah. You're annoying. Like, cause, and it wasn't like, oh, you got to see this. Oh, you got to see this. Oh, you got to see this. It was like, you know, I would be on, um, this is how long ago this was. This is a late nineties, a mail list, <laughs> you know, an email listserv or a message board about something completely different. Maybe it was comics. Maybe it was another television show and Buffy fans would always compare it. You would always bring up, bring it up. And I'd be like, I, I because of you, I'm not watching the show. And I think, I think that's what, I think that's what happens sometimes with, with some bands where the ever faithful will kind of turn off. Um, and, and they do it inadvertently too, because there are some fans of, of things where, you know, those people are downright assholes and you're just like, well, you're driving us all the way because you want to keep something pure. Certain comic book fans will do that. Yeah. I'm, I tend to, yeah. Well, there was a point when um, I was, tell you how far just how long ago this was mm-hmm. word reached my ears that van halen back when they first started up they did some led zeppelin covers right yeah. at, at one of their shows and they are out there if you know where to look they are out there in like amazingly good sound quality right oh, really? so i heard that i was like holy shit that would be awesome right i would love to hear because like Roth era Van Halen playing a couple of Zeppelin songs, sign me up. I am a yeah. huge Led Zeppelin fan, right? So I thought, well, where better to go than the Van Halen news group? They're going to know where someone's going to have a copy of it. And then you can do a, some kind of a trade or something because MP3s were just nowhere on the radar at that point. Yeah. And so I thought, well, I can do that. And this is going to be great. So I went to their, went to their news group and holy crap, dude, those people. And I'm not talking about just like one or two or three of them. Those be mulleted people, they are all assholes. 
and I don't mean like some of them, a couple of them. No, fucking all of them. All right, every single Van Halen fan that I've ever met, either online, on, in person, wherever, has been a complete prick of a human being. And I don't know what it is, but it's it just what I've noticed is that certain bands attract a certain type of person. And I and I, I was kind of working with uh, the assumption, at least back when I was in when I was in uh, college, that there's something perhaps in the in the music or their lyrics or the guitar riffs or fucking whatever it is that Dave Matthews band would attract brain dead frat boys Pearl Jam they had a funny way of attracting these sort of pretentious pseudo intellectual pot smoking hipsters sort of uh, let me think Tori Amos I hate to say it I disavow it as I say it but Feminists and lesbians. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. I should, it's, it, it, we're talking about fan stereotypes, though, so it fits. Right. You and, know, but, you, you, we can get a pass for saying that. Well, I, I, I hope so, because, you know, I, I shudder to think. I'm going to open up my email. I'm just going to get nailed to the wall here. And, um, and so on and so forth. And Van Halen, I... Uh, Maybe it's just because they're jerks themselves. Maybe they just drew the short straw. I have no idea. Every single last one of their fans is a dick. And I, I don't get it, but you know, it, the, after you come across the 100 jerk Van Halen fan, you kind of have to start thinking, you know what? Maybe the band has something to do with this. Maybe it does. I don't know. I, I, um, I have a few Van Halen albums. I think everybody does. Yeah, look, issued to you at birth if you're if you're our age. Yeah, and uh, and I've never found him in one of his columns years ago for oh Spin or Esquire or wherever the hell he was writing at the time. Uh, Chuck Klosterman did a rundown of like ten bands that he felt were the most quote rated bands, so they weren't underrated, they weren't overrated. They I were remember that. That was awesome. That was and Van, Van Halen is number one in that list. He was like, it's just it, it was like the Black Crows and and uh, Wilco and, and a few other bands, but he was like, Van Halen is the most rated band, and, and it just like re, I remember reading that column and going, yeah, and they're not a terrible band by any means even with Sammy Hagar they were not a terrible band um, and that's maybe because my first exposure to Van Halen was probably through Sammy Hagar except for Jump because I discovered music probably around like 85 or so but yeah I think you're right I think it's I think it's the last um, maybe the last 20 years or so have done it and but I can't exactly explain it because beyond the albums that I have and the occasional song that I hear on the radio, I don't listen to them very often. But but yeah, it's and uh, <laughs> Eddie Van Halen has a lot of explaining to do anyway. <laughs> if it wasn't for Eddie Van Halen, we wouldn't have gotten so many really really bad cheap knockoff wannabe guitarists through the 80s and 90s who just oh god I mean when he did it it was cool like Eruption yeah and then the cover of You Really Got Me I mean that's still some excellent excellent guitar work but by the time you get to the late 80s and just hair metals everywhere um 
you want to talk about a group that could be stereotyped, you know, um, I hear Bon Jovi and I think teased hair, acid wash, um, bad Jersey accent girl oh, <laughs> at a mall, <laughs> like Paramus or something. Well, my, uh, <laughs> you know, in, in terms of, I guess, celebrities who, damn it, they need to be called out on the carpet and made to answer for certain things. Yeah, Van Halen, Eddie Van Halen, is he's up near uh, the top of my list. I would actually want to put, though, you know, at least to some degree or another, Eddie Vedder from Pearl Jam, not because of... Actually, I do have a little bit of a grudge against the guy, but mostly because he was so... Uh, who, the, who the hell knew it at the time, right? But he, was, he ended up being so influential. Yeah. And... It, like I said, this whole kind of growling thing that he did that, honestly, he it's not like he invented it, but somehow he perfected he perfected the James Hetfield, I guess. And yeah, then, him and uh, Lane Staley from Alice in Chains both, not, Staley's voice is a lot deeper, but they both did a lot of the same, you know, mm-hmm. so. And it's just, every time I, I, it's less so now because, you know, obviously this band isn't as big as they used to be. But there was a time when Nickelback was fucking ubiquitous, and I just wanted to track Eddie Vedder down and beat his ass. You know, it's like, dude, you did this, all right? You're you're taking one for the team now, buddy. Just and uh... Nickelback. I mean, that's that's a their own country has disowned them. I mean, well, wouldn't you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it just it reminds you of what a wasteland the early 2000s were in terms of like the top 40 rock charts I mean there was good rock music in the, in the early 2000s but a lot of it was off of a lot of people's radar for so long because bands like Creed and Nickelback just kind of dominated the radio airplay lists well you know what I'll, I'll, I'll give Creed a pass at least that their guitarist his name escapes me but their guitarist just Bob Smith he at least played guitar and he had a just kind of this sort of structured way of uh, of writing songs and stuff that mm-hmm. i thought was kind of interesting not necessarily unique although kind of in the alternative music scene but yeah what i think of when i think of the early 2000s what i really think of is that sort of second wave corn bullshit and again speaking of people that need to be called out on the carpet for for a musical crimes against humanity it all starts with corn in my book, dude. I mean, they unintentionally or not, they kicked off a fucking genre. Oh god, uh, that yeah. Oh, yes, you're right. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the early 2000s. I mean, I'd kind of tuned out of radio long, long by that point, and so I maybe I've got less right to complain than anybody. But it's just I'm at a real loss to think of like a new band that started in the early 2000s, except for maybe Coldplay. Mm-hmm. But they're more like poppy anyway. But um, yeah. except for maybe Coldplay or something like that, I'm at a loss to think of a band that started back then that I can stomach listening to. It's I'm, it's a short fucking list. Uh, you know, I think the most in, one of the most influential people from that period probably be Jack White. Oh yeah, and I'm. I don't hate the White Stripes, and I don't hate him at all. I just don't love, you know. I just 
it's it's there it's fine you know Coldplay I never really hated until I started hearing their songs every damn second of the day um okay all right you know because like <laughs> I, I just because I, I, I listen I have a satellite radio hook up in my car so I'll flip around and they play just play way too much Coldplay and I'm just like oh my god <laughs> so, oh, all right fair enough just as a <laughs> I feel like I, I have to defend myself a little bit here <laughs> Um. All right. Best way I can think of to put it, I'm just gonna just put it out there. I heard Coldplay. I want to say, it, like, I, you know that sometimes you you'll notice a band and they're sort of on the way up. Yeah. They've released what is probably going to be their 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 major breakthrough, but it's not as big yet as it will be next month, right? Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where I was with Coldplay, right? And I thought that was just kind of an interesting name for a band i don't really understand but okay whatever and i listened to their uh cd parachutes and i ask only that you remember the fact that i had just gotten run over in this huge epic fucking breakup Uh right it's like the kind of breakup where you know you two finally have it out in your living room then you open up the door throw her out and you're like if i see you again in this life i'm shooting (laughs) you on sight you know like that kind it's a fucking breakup right and so, you know, that's, and then you spend the whole summer just wanting to kill yourself, but, you know, things keep getting in the way, and it, it's very better off dead. And um, mm-hmm. I heard that CD, and I don't know, it, it, it wasn't so mopey that it made me feel worse, but it wasn't really so peppy that I felt like I could forget about what had just happened. It was just emo enough. And so I really, even now, I still have a really high opinion of that CD. Now, Coldplay as a sort of cultural institution can fuck off. Okay, that, that's and I'm kind of because I, I first heard them and it was probably what, about 2000 because I saw the video for Yellow, mm-hmm. um, and I happened to be in I was I was in Germany. It was like a trade show or something I went to. I was working for a dot com at the time, mm-hmm. and MTV the only one of the few. English language channels that the hotel that we were in got was MTV Europe and they were, and they were, it was just before yellow started to break over in, in the States. And, um, that, that album, I have that album. That's a, that's still a good album. You're right. It's just, there was this sort of, when they kind of became the, the biggest man in the world type of status, it got, that's when I started to check out. Yeah. So, yeah, there are very, very few bands that I look at and I'm like, I see no justification for your existence. You know, I can always find at least one good song by a band. Um, maybe not like Casey and the Sunshine Band, but seriously, I'm just kidding. Actually, let's get down the night's a decent song. Okay, <laughs> fair enough. I'm not, Disco's not my thing. Okay, um, well, Foreigner, Foreigner is one of those groups that I just don't especially like. You know, okay, urgent maybe, <laughs> but but I mean when I when I can listen to when I can listen to some of the more cheesy shit from the early '80s and and still enjoy it, um, or want or want to hear a deeper cut by a band like I actually like Journey. Um, don't want to hear. Don't stop. Believe in. Mm-hmm. Mainly because it's been overplayed to death, but I'll listen to any way you want it or something like that. So I think sometimes with bands like that, it's 
you might not want to hear one song by them, but you'll listen to other stuff. Um, you too is a great example. Uh, uh. yeah, well, you two has a cycle where it had like their last couple of albums have not done very well. And I deleted the re- most recent one from iTunes, but, um, <laughs> cause they gave it to me for free and I was like, I don't want this. Yeah. Uh, but they would come out like maybe through the eighties and the nineties, you'd have them come out with a new album and either the early 2000s and it was, it was good. And you were like, Oh, I really like this. And then Bono started getting annoying again. Mm-hmm. And you started to hate the band again. And then Bono went away and then Bono started. It's just like Bono's annoyance comes in cycles. Um, but like to this day, if I hear mysterious ways, I will skip the song because that's my favorite U2 album. I've heard that song too many times on the radio. Right. So sometimes it, and, um, yeah, back to Eddie Vedder, you know, I kind of stopped listening to them after Vitalogy. Mm-hmm. And I always give them credit for at least trying to do something with regard to Ticketmaster mm-hmm. in the mid-90s. Because, you know, that was, I mean, it, it blew up in their face. And it didn't go well because I don't think, you know, had they tried to do that now, mm-hmm. it probably would have worked. I think the internet has helped level a lot of that Ling field. Um, but I think it blew up in their face in the same way that when Marvel tried to take on diamond, um, in the, around the same time and try to do their own distribution, it blew up in their face too. And I think it was just a, um, I don't think they knew that they were getting into when they tried to take on Ticketmaster in that regard. Uh, but I, I at least applaud them for, you know, giving something a shot that because Ticketmaster really screws people over in terms of, you know, extra charges on top of, you know, or at least they did. I don't even know if Ticketmaster's still around, but they did back then. It was like, you know, the ticket was $25. Here's like another $8 worth of fees. Well, and, you know, and I, like, <laughs> on the one hand, you know, I, 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 when I, when I was younger and that whole Ticketmaster thing was going on, I remember thinking, yeah, you know, that is, that's an interesting that's an that, that's just an interesting battle to pick, you know, because I would yeah. have thought that, you know, the supposedly, you know, anti everything type of band, I would have thought they were gonna maybe just stop making videos explicitly because of the fact that they don't like MTV, and so no, they stopped making videos because they don't really like videos. Like videos, which is fine. Yeah, <laughs> but you know, but I thought, okay, so but you're gonna go after Ticketmaster because I figured, you know, it makes sense that you know they pick a fight with somebody Ticketmaster is as good as anybody I love a good fight yeah. so and and as a kid that's about as much as you think about it you know but as I get older though one of the maybe it's just the I don't know what's left of my inner libertarian but I just can't help but think you know number one Pearl Jam Inc what right do you have to dictate another company's uh, profit margin to them true and Number two, you know, uh, you can have attorneys from from your corporation because let's face it, every single rock band they are a sort of LLC in their own right. Yeah. They all have legal representation. There yeah. is such a thing as negotiation. You don't need to go necessarily straight for the jugular like you did. And you know, it just kind of felt to me like somebody cut you off in traffic so in effect what you do is you take out your bazooka and you blow him and his family away i mean that is the kind of overreaction that we're talking about and yeah. it just made me wonder if there was any type of mediation between the two and i'm 
I, I, look, I don't know what the end game of that might have been. But at least you could have tried. As far as I know, they didn't. They just went straight. They went straight to the law. Yeah, they they went. And I'm do I'm trying to remember this off the top of my head. So you know, mm-hmm. my memory might be cloudy here. But I think it was a case of too much and just not the right approach. It, it's because Ticketmaster is on the same level of a as a Clear Channel or Comcast or something where it is just that big and you know you would hope (laughs) that you would have more competition in certain regards Mm -hmm. that if because I don't think the thing is it's like my understanding of it was that the venues are using Ticketmaster exclusively yeah not not Pearl Jam, not the record company. So you're going to whatever Coliseum, amphitheater, wherever you're playing, that's where you're running into that issue. Um, so can you come in and say, well, you know, so that I think that's why they took on too much because I don't think, I don't know if they really understood how the, how that system really, really worked. But on the same level, um, as much as it blew up in their face, I don't really think it, it might have alienated a number of people who would have listened to their music otherwise, but I think their core fan base, um, it strengthened them in a lot. Yeah. Of because, because it was, it was right along the ideals of their core fan base with Metallica went after Napster. Yeah. I think that was just inherently stupid and it made, I mean, granted Lars Ulrich's kind of an ass anyway, but it made him just look like a bigger ass than he was because I think it alienated a lot of people. Um, no matter what the principle, no matter what the debate was about who was getting money from music and who was stealing and who was doing this, it was, you know, there, there were better ways to approach that. I think the music industry, I think you were, I think you were talking to Honeywell about this, actually. I think this is why it's on my mind because I was listening to your your shoot the shit with Honeywell last night. And I think that whole thing, I think you, I think you had mentioned that one of you guys had mentioned how the recording industry hasn't really recovered from a lot of that. And I think, I honestly think they shot themselves in the foot by taking such a hard line against it where they could have used it to their advantage. Well, I've often thought, you know, what if the RIAA had bought out Napster? And yeah. don't don't tell me that you know that guy. What's his name? Fanning. Mm-hmm. That he Sean wouldn't. Fanning. Sean Fanning. Yeah, sorry, I can never remember. Um, he, I think he, you know, there there came a point when obviously he had no choice but to sell out. Yeah. But I think he would have sold out. And I think that you know would it have been would Napster have become in effect iTunes? Well, we'll never know. But at the very least, what it would have done is it would have gotten the music industry on board with let's face it the future this digital revolution that we're all living in right now back in like when, when was Napster big like 1999 yeah okay. and 2000 it was it was more or less dead by like 01 yeah that, that is how fast it, it, it yeah. yeah and um, but the other thing was you know just a second ago you said that you know Pearl Jam's uh, self-righteous little crusade against <laughs> Uh, Ticketmaster. Ticket it, it basically strengthened their core. Actually, I said it strengthened their core. Their core. Yes. Fan. Okay. Fuck it. Whatever. Whatever was said. Was I said. think. I think you're right, and, though. And it's funny that Metallica's little battle 
was not with Napster. It was with their fans, and that turned off their core fans. And at the same time, they were sort of broadening out, and they were more mainstream at that point than they'd ever been. And so I think what they thought, rightly as it turns out, is that they could replace their core metal fans with, uh, shall we say, core college kids or core suburbanites or something like that. Alternative. (laughs) They were going away from metal to what was deemed alternative at the time. Yeah. If you're using labels, so to speak. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, I don't know if that's what they intended to do, but they basically replaced one part of their audience that will never speak to them again with another one that thinks that they are the epitome of metal or alternative or whatever you want to call it just by the fact that they listen to Metallica, S&M. You know, mm-hmm. and as good as a, as good an album as Metallica, S&M might be, <laughs> back up, bitch, <laughs> you know. So it's it's just weird how anyway. So. Yeah. Well, my I actually stopped with Garage Inc. So wow, dude, you hung in there. <laughs> Kudos I, well, to I, you. I had see. I started my first album was Injustice for All, but I didn't get it. I got it that in like '93 uh, or so. So it was the Black Album, which mm. somebody taped for me, and then the Justice for All mm. bought Load because that was like the next album liked it I remember liking it I got reload what I felt like I bought that out of obligation everybody you know like you know and then the the main reason that I had bought Garage Inc was I had the majority of the um the older stuff that's on that on tape in various mixtapes because friends of mine had import CDs or they had cassette singles. So I had basically, I had the vast majority of all the Garage Days and Garage Days Revisited stuff and and the B-sides and all that on various mixtapes and stuff. I was like, well, here it is all in one place on one CD. And that's the reason I bought Garage Inc., I didn't really care much about the new material, but then ah. it was about 98, 99 where I was kind of like, I, my musical tastes had shifted though. Mm. You know, I was not listening to metal in that regard either. I mean, regret, I regret the amount of ska that I listened to in the late nineties. I never dressed the part thankfully, but I listened to a lot of punk and you know, punk and metal are related, but they're totally not related. <laughs> so the only reason there's any gray area between the two, Lemmy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I had, well, I had done that episode about Green Day because, you know, um, the back in '94 there wasn't, you know, if Blink 182 is the first punk band that you discover, a I'm sorry. Um, B, you might have jumped to um, Green Day or whatever imitation was out at the time. Um, Some 41. Uh, I'm trying to think of some of these other bands that popped up. But you, you know what I'm talking about, where every other band started sounding like Blink-182 or Green Day. 1984, there, there was Green Day and there might have been a couple of other bands, but that was when you may have actually discovered The Clash or you know, I knew who the Ramones were. I just did not have a lot of their music. You know, so so I kind of got into to classic 70s punk and then I think out of all of the punk 
metal alternative stuff. I think the replacements are probably my favorite band out of all of that. And their sound changes significantly by the end. Mm-hmm. Um, by 91, what you hear on All Shook Down is so different from what you hear on Sorry Ma, Forgot to Take Out the Trash. Um, in fact, I think either have to talk to whoever is in charge of it i think either let it be or please to meet me would be a great long play episode i always listen to that show and i think of like five albums that i'd love to go on and do <laughs> yeah me, me too and you know like the thing is i actually told honeywell i said you know look i usually don't go where i'm not invited i try yeah. not to elbow my way into anything but i tell you this sir if you record anything about Led Zeppelin and I'm not there, you are dead to me. You know? Well, they, they did the game, the Queen album, the game, which is one of the few that I don't own. Because mm-hmm. um, I have most of the stuff from the 70s on CD, and then I had most of everything from the works all the way to the end on, on uh, cassette. Right. Um, but yeah, so I listened to a lot of Queen in high school, but, you know, like my two big ones are always Bruce Springsteen and Billy Joel, um, partially because of the geographical area mm, yeah. that I grew up in. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, with Billy Joel, it was like, you know, I play the piano. So, or I, I haven't, granted, I haven't sat down at the piano for real for a number of years, but, but, you know, uh, stuff like that. So, so when they come on, I'm like, um, it, and I think what, what I liked about that show was they've had a pretty good mix of different styles and stuff, you know. Um, they did the Beatles and they've done the Sundays and King Crimson. And I know the talking head, I haven't listened to the talking heads one yet, but when you're doing that across that many different genres of music, I think that's a really cool music show because like you said, when you're, when you're a teenager, there's a lot of music you listen to because your friends are listening to it. I think that's the reason I got into Metallica in the first place Yeah, because it was like, you know, not that I had to, not that I, not that I really should have cared about looking cool, but you know, my friends weren't listening to Elton John. Yeah, no, they weren't. And <laughs> and I love some seventies Elton John, man. Even some eighties Elton John. But mm-hmm. you know, I I kind of you know downplayed the fact that I had a couple of Elton John CDs and uh, played up the fact that I had you know most of Metallica's catalog and I had the I had the Jane's Addiction Ritual de Habitual. Um, album cover with with the with the obscene painting on the cover you know and right. i had nine inch nails and stuff like that but you know not that i was not that i tried to look the part or anything i think that's where i kind of got off without being called a complete poser because i just simply listened to the music but i was listening to the Ten Thousand maniacs just as much as i was listening to you know you know uh entered uh master of puppets you know or, or one of the other cds that i had yeah, it's funny, you know, you mentioned 10,000 Maniacs, yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, um, that Unplugged album is still still flat out amazing. Yeah, and it's strange to think, you know, maybe it's because just Natalie Merchant left, like, the day after it came out, or, or I don't know, but... It, she left pretty soon after that, either or when it started to chart, um, she had already left the group, I think. Wow, okay, now that I did, I knew it was early, but wow, so... It was... It was pretty close to like, you know, there was a kind of coincided that they were they were more or less done right as that album really hit big. Well, and just it made me think that had they been able to actually like build on that, you know, Mm -hmm. and 
I think 10,000 Maniacs, instead of being just this minor footnote from 1993, we would still remember them, at least somewhat, uh, today. And they, they wouldn't be, they wouldn't just be the other band, apart from uh, the Spin Doctors, that had a big uh, that had a big hit in 1993. You know, so oh, um, everybody has that Spin Doctors CD. I I, I don't. I never oh, bought really? it. Yeah, lucky. I am lucky. <laughs> you escaped, my friend. <laughs> well, I, there is a reason for that. Actually, what happened was, I swear to God, I must have had a very unusual childhood or something. I don't know. But I hear these stories about kids that get sent off to these just horrible, horrible summer camps, and just the horror stories that they that they told, and that never happened to me. I mean, the summer camp that I got sent to in the summer of 1993 was friggin' punk rock. That's I mean, cool. Yeah, it was uh, this this summer camp. It was uh, in 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 the mountains in Texas, and uh, yes, Texas has mountains, <laughs> and. Um, Sort of. And so went out there and, you know, we rode horses, uh, shot bows and arrows. You know, we built stuff, uh, fucking shot guns. I mean, you name it. We did oh. like real guns, right? Like shotguns and stuff, handguns, you name it. And it was just it was fucking awesome. Right. And so, you know, and I was there for uh, two weeks. And so you have a bunch of kids that are about 12, 13 years old from literally all over the country. Right. And um mm. You know, not just Texas. I mean, literally all over the country. Like one of them was from like Wyatt, like Vermont or something like that. Just some place that's just like incredibly white and incredibly flat and incredibly cold. You know, and he's like, I came here for the weather. So, <laughs> and uh, so it was. It was all spin doctors. Well, hold on. It was spin doctor. Let me think. It was ten thousand maniacs. Was it ten thousand? Actually, ten thousand maniacs. I don't remember, but it was mm -hmm. spin doctors, and it was. That fucking Tom Cochran song. Life is a Highway? Yeah, God, I want to chase they that guy. They play that a lot on the radio. Yeah, and I'm, I'm going to chase that guy down one of these days. And then some, then some like country group um, covered it a few years ago, and it started popping up again. I don't know who covered it. I just would, I would hear it, you know, every once in a while. I'd be like, It's a musical why? plague, okay? This is the musical <laughs> equivalent of the Black Plague. All right. Say whatever you want about my humps. We knew when to stop listening to that song as a culture. Okay. <laughs> Fuck's sake, dude. You're gonna do a cover of that. Anyway, sorry. So, but that's you know that was the first time that I, the, I heard it. The fucking Eagle Eye Cherry song still gets airplay. <laughs> Watch well, that. I could. Well, okay, fine. You're. Fair. It's not a bad song. It just. Still get you're just like they're still playing the song. <laughs> yeah, it was not a song you want to listen to again, even six months later. But, but anyway, so like the Spin Doctors though, and I remember listening to the song and thinking, you know, I really like the singer, like the way because he because that guy. Look, I'm not saying that this is the greatest band in the history of anything, but it's okay to appreciate the fact that somebody's got talent, and that guy could go. Yeah, uh, he could go like he, he's not exactly rapping necessarily at one point in that song, but he's going just so fucking fast. And I'm sorry, dude, it's not. I don't know. It's just it, it's it's cool. And I appreciated like his singing, but there was just something about that song that I, I'll be honest with you. I just thought it was too repetitive. It went on too long. It, it was either not heavy enough or it was too heavy or I don't, I don't know. It was, there's something about that guitar riff. That's always just bugged the fuck out of me. Mm -hmm. Just overall it's, it, and I thought 
as interesting as this singer might be, I do not believe I will ever own the CD. He he ended up having. um, Oh, I saw this on somewhere on VH1 or you know, be where are they now or like one of those types of shows. And right around the time their second album came out. He had like had to have surgery on his vocal cords or something, and so they couldn't tour. Um, and he eventually got his new voice back and everything. But I always wonder had that album, which that album was big in 91, 92, 93 ish, but it was kind of this weird blip where it didn't match up with a lot of the other things that were around. Mm-hmm. I think maybe the closest thing that, or the thing that the people were probably comparing them to were, was because um, around this, this was around the same time that the chili peppers had come out with blood sugar, sex magic. And there's really not much of a comparison between the two, but I could see how, you know, in your little marketing categorization, trying to push thing, you would try to group those together. But had they come out with this maybe 94, 95 when Dave Matthews band and Blues Traveler and some of these other bands were making more of a dent and they might have had a little more staying power than being this sort of weird anomaly. It's almost like they were a couple of years too soon. They hit they peaked a couple of years too soon because um, Dave Matthews came out and Under the Table and Dreaming comes out in 94, but it really doesn't start to peak until around this time in 95. Mm-hmm. And then um, – Runaround gets released around the summer of 95. Oh, yeah. And um, Blues Traveler, another band musically that is like phenomenal. There, There's just a lot of – I have like two of their CDs and there's a lot of really, really good stuff in there. Um, but there's only so much that you can – you know, there's only so much that I'm going to want to listen to. And then the, the Dave Matthews Blues Traveler thing begat – like people really getting no pun intended hooked on bands like fish. Yeah. Which my or government mule. I remember. Yeah. My roommates in college loved fish. I think their gateway to fish though was the dead. And I'm not a big dead fan. I, I there, there's a, I like the dead stuff that is very bluesy. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it gets all very like hippy dippy, you've got to seriously be on drugs to enjoy the 30 minute version of trucking or whatever hell song they're playing. I'm like, <laughs> I, I can't, I, I think I just have a, I have a music sensibility that's a little more tighter than, than that. Even though I will listen to the occasional, you know, eight minute song, <laughs> you know, like, like I love cashmere and, you know, and, and stairway, um, which are long songs. Yeah. And if you were to cut them up on the radio, I'd find you and beat you, you know, um, and I'll listen to all of American pie, even though a lot of people don't like that song. I particularly do, but when it's, but, but, but then again, those songs are the, those songs, as long as they are pretty tight there, there's a progression. You can follow that song when it's like, I'm off in fairy hippie land and Ooh, here's a note now. And blah, blah, And I'm just like, checking my watch the show you know because i'm like wonder can i i'm gonna go to beer or something because like it's just not i think i just have too much energy for that well and i think <laughs> i think part of the issue and i'm not sure if this is a problem that you have necessarily <laughs> but i've i've just never really 
figured out what I'm supposed to do at a concert, you know? I mean, like, if you go see a movie, you know what you're there to do. Mm -hmm. And I would say that even if you go to... Like, if you go to listen to a symphony or something like that, it may, it's probably a symphony that you've got at least passing familiarity with. Yeah. And it's not really so much about the symphony itself, although it's about this orchestra's and this conductor's take on that symphony. And so you're there as much as anything to soak it in and evaluate it. Are yes. these decisions that, and values that you agree with? At a fucking rock concert, though, dude, I'm sorry. I don't know what the hell I'm supposed to do. I really don't. Well, because you get you get different contingents of people. You get people who are longtime fans of the band, and they want to hear. Sir, they have a playlist. They have a set list in their mind. Mm-hmm. And if they don't hear a certain, there are people who don't hear a certain song. Like, why did I come here? He didn't play. You know, well, I thought he was going to play "Born to Run." You know, um, and then there are the the people who sing along to every single lyric at a loud volume and are the ones who are like, okay, can, can I hear them sing the song? Yeah. And I think it depends on the, uh, on how well you know the band. If you're going to see, if you end up seeing a band that you've never seen before and you're not that familiar with outside of a couple of songs, then, then I think that that whole idea of discovering the band in the way that you would like absorb their music, absorb a sympathy, symphony, can come into play too. Cause I remember going to a couple of concerts where I was familiar with a couple of band of the band's hits, but hadn't bought the album yet. And cause on whatever the tickets fell into my lap or something. And then went back and remembered this song, this song and this song and went out and saw it. It worked its magic. I ended up buying the CD. Um, and then I was at, concerts for bands where I knew the everything in the catalog and you're right sometimes you don't necessarily know what to do <laughs> you're like right. do I sing along do I clap you know do I just kind of especially if you've seen them before too well yeah and and there's that but you know when when people sing along at a, a concert number one I just like loudly number one I just think that's fucking rude mm-hmm. right but the other thing is that when you're really familiar with whatever song is being played and you hear them getting the lyrics wrong I'm, it's just that 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 extra unnecessary step, you know. Mm-hmm. So yeah, no, I'm I'm with you. So. <laughs> well, yeah. um, it's not that I am that I'm not having a good time here. I am, but I look. We're I'm looking at the clock here, and yeah, I know both of us. Both of us have to. Uh, I know I have to get going soon anyway. Yeah, but all the same. Uh, first yeah. off, uh, thank you very much for for stopping by and hanging out with no me. Problem. This has been a ton of fun, and I, I, well, we can talk about it more in just a bit. But I want to plan something with you for the future. But um, yes. second, for uh, for right now, um, would you mind uh, just reminding everybody where it is that they can find you because they everybody needs to be listening to your shows, you know. Okay. So I've I've got uh, two shows on the Two True Freaks Network. Uh, one of them is In Country. It's a podcast that covers the Marvel Comics series, The Nom. I'm about about 45 episodes in as of recording this. So by the time this comes out, I might, I'll probably have more because it comes out every, about every two weeks. I'm going issue by issue, taking a break every once in a while for uh, a special, whether it be a, a movie or book or something that has to do with the Vietnam War. Um, and the other one, my main podcast is Pop Culture Affidavit, which is literally everything random in the world of popular culture. Uh, every episode, I choose something completely different. It's movies, TV, music, comics. Uh, this year, I have going a mini series along with the main 
set of episodes, which is called 80 Years of DC Comics. And every once a month, I'm going to be taking a look at a genre of comics in DC Comics that is not as or stories that are not as celebrated as we're used to. So I've done um, romance. I've done action adventure. Um, and I know that I'll be covering like Western and, and sci-fi and some of the like funny animal books and stuff like that because there's, the, the company's been around for 80 years and I love me some superheroes, but it, it's been kind of fun to look at some of the stuff other than superheroes that they've done. Uh, and then that um, and then Pop Culture Affidavit itself, um, you can find the blog because I post essays on a regular basis at popcultureaffidavit.com and both can be downloaded from the Two True Freaks uh website and feed awesome well thank you very much and so um again this show uh you know shoot the ship really had a great time with it so thank you very much now um as uh as to next week i'm going to be talking about adventures of superman number 520 and 521 so it's pretty much it for uh for us this week so bye everybody i'll see you next week we are out cool You know, a dear friend once said to me, it's a lot of fun when everyone's a dork of some sort or another. And I thought not only are those words to live by, it's an idea worth celebrating. So that's why I created Pop Culture Affidavit, a podcast that is about, well, let's just say it's completely random. (laughs) One episode might be about movies, the next might be about comics, the next might be about music. All that matters is that I'm giving you a recap and critique of stuff I enjoy and you're having as much fun as I am or at least I hope. So join me, Tom Panneries, for Pop Culture Affidavit, the sworn testimony of a dork. You can find a new episode at least once a month at popcultureaffidavit.podomatic.com and notes, essays, and other stuff once a week at popcultureaffidavit.com. The Vietnam War, a conflict that changed America. Of those who served, many came back irrevocably changed, while many did not come back at all. This is their story. Marvel Comics presents The Nam. Join me, Tom Panneries, for In Country, a podcast that covers Marvel Comics series The Nam. Each episode, I will recap and review one issue of the series, as well as provide historical context that's important to understanding the events behind the story. Along the way, I will also take a look at the movies, music, and literature surrounding the Vietnam War. New episodes are posted every two weeks at incountry.podomatic.com. You can find show notes and other media at popcultureaffidavit.com. 